This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special set of guests. Cameron and Tyler Winklevoss are the twins who have been behind some of the most fascinating developments in technology, cryptocurrency, venture capital. Uh, you might be familiar with them uh, from the way they were depicted in the social network. They were the folks who had the original idea behind Harvard Connection, which later became uh, a predecessor company that uh, uh, theoretically Mark Zuckerberg lifted uh, some of the ideas from and, and used to launch uh, Facebook. We talk about that. We discuss the variety of different opportunities that exist in cryptocurrency, in Bitcoin, in Gemini, which is the exchange secure vault and exchange they set up. Uh, we talk about other venture capital work they, they do. It's really a fascinating conversation that's wide ranging and covers a ton of different stuff. If you are at all remotely interested in anything from VCs to startup to crypto, you will find this conversation fascinating. So with no further ado, my conversation with the Winklevi. My special guests this week are Cameron and Tyler Winklevoss, better known as Winklevi. Is that plural? Do you guys like that or is that just a tired joke you're sick of? <laughs> We're okay with it. You're yeah, okay with it. It's fine. So in case you are wholly unfamiliar with who they are, they most famously worked on the predecessor at Harvard uh, to Facebook with Mark Zuckerberg, who they subsequently sued for stealing their intellectual property. That case was settled for tens of millions of dollars. They now run Winklevoss Capital, a VC firm, and have been aggressive investors in crypto, blockchain, Bitcoin, etc. They also founded Gemini, a cryptocurrency exchange, Cameron and Tyler Winklevoss, welcome to Bloomberg. Thanks for having us. Thank you. And by the way, you guys have to just feel free to jump in. I don't know which one of you to look at. You are my first set of twins as uh, really? interviewees, so it's a little confusing, but, but quite intriguing, and I, I think we'll have a little fun with it. So I have to start with the obvious question. You guys must be recognized wherever you go. Is that a headache? Is it a hindrance? Does it help? How do, how do you deal with your fame from um, from the whole Facebook uh, debacle? So, you know, we're not recognized. So we've, we've always been recognized, well, in the sense that, like, oh, there's two of you. So there's right. always been this thing like, wait, are you guys twins? Uh, way before any of all this. Does anyone really ask you if you're twins? I mean, you guys kind of look like identical twins. More than you'd think. Yeah. And, and a lot of times they ask if we're identical or like brothers. Um, but, well, yeah. brothers, I, really? Yeah. I'm not sure if you guys are related. <laughs> That's just shocking that anyone would say that. But the uh, it kind of depends where we are. We mm -hmm. can at least... It feels like we can kind of blend in a little bit, but it, mm -hmm. it's it's definitely harder being uh, six four, six five, right. you know, six <laughs> or five twins. It, that's almost harder to disguise right. than like, oh, those are the guys from the social network. So it kind of depends where we are if we're at like a business school event or something, right. um, you know, where people sort of read trade magazines or a cryptocurrency event. Um, but if we're just kind of walking. Uh, down the street, it doesn't feel like a lot of people necessarily recognize us, but maybe we just don't see it. And and Manhattan is pretty chill about that for the most part, isn't it? For the it? most part. I mean, we've definitely been asked to take selfies just because we're twins. The really? Yeah, the person had like no idea who we were and probably figured it out after the fact or whatever. <laughs> um, so the twin thing gets a lot of eyes for sure, especially because we're, you know, not, you know, we're older twins usually you know twins sort of separate live in different cities we kind of work together where we have similar routines so we might be like walking together down the street and people sort of turn around and say oh those are two guys that are tall that look right. identical I think, I think pe people appreciate the fact that we <laughs> still get along and we're like in our later 30s i think mm -hmm. they, they expect to sort of see twins you know, ten-year-old twins like hanging out, dressed together. alike with lollipops. And yeah. yeah. All right. So let let's move forward. From I'm sure you're tired of that question. You must get it all the time. So undergraduate at Harvard Business School at Oxford was the plan 
always to go into finance to be entrepreneurs. What was what was the thinking uh, when you were mapping out your academic and professional careers? I think the idea was I think we thought we'd always be entrepreneurs because our dad is an entrepreneur and he has a technology company and has been building software for 30 years. Um, he was a professor of actual science uh, back at Wharton and then went off and became an entrepreneur. So we cut, we grew up um, in a startup tech office environment and we always wanted to sort of be like that. Um, and then we discovered the sport of rowing mm-hmm. and one thing led to the, to the next and said, oh, maybe I can be good at this in high school. And then got pretty good, made junior national team and said, hmm, maybe we can row in college and I don't know, let's see what Is happens. Is that how you ended up on the Charles River? Was it from high school rowing? Yeah, I mean, that was, Harvard was, Harry Parker was this legendary coach. He mm-hmm. coached for over 50 seasons. Wow. And by the time we were applying to college, he was a guy that you would aspire as a, as a high school rower to, to row for. And then we got to college and said, hey, maybe we can make the varsity. And then we did that. We're undefeated national champions in 2003, 2004. Um, and then we said, hey, maybe we should try our luck at the national team and try the Olympic level. So it was one of these things that just it was, I, I kind of call our, our sports career a bit of a detour because mm-hmm. we didn't grow up in this jock household. Um, my parents played sports, but it you know the house didn't revolve around that. It actually really revolved around entrepreneurship and business ideas. So rowing sort of started off as this thing that became a 15-year detour, but I think we always knew we'd get back into startups. So so let's talk about startups. You guys run Winklevoss Capital. What sort of companies do you invest in? What are you looking for uh, in a startup? So we invest in early-stage startups uh, with the technology focus generally, but we're somewhat agnostic. Um, we've definitely invested in consumer brands and, and things that we like. Um, it's a private investment firm, so we kind of make the decisions and call the shots. We don't have outside money um, yet. Um, we could potentially raise at some later point, but currently it's private. Yeah. And I think the, the, there's just a big focus on uh, software technology. Although, as Cameron said, we've definitely done CPG type stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it, it is it is really up to us. That That is the, the fun about it. And that has actually been one of the greatest advantages is the agility and the nimbleness. Because when we saw Bitcoin originally, um, we could invest in it because we called the shots versus a lot of VCs. They can only invest in C-Corps. So they had structural right. problems with their... Um, you know, private offering documents where even if they wanted to invest in Bitcoin, they couldn't. They had to invest in companies. And the partners, a lot of them uh, saw the opportunity and personally invested in Bitcoin, but couldn't invest their fund in it. Interesting. So sticking with portfolio companies, you had a, a firm you invested in. Love Begins with L was just acquired by Procter & Gamble. Uh-huh. Our, our Crunchbase says you've already had 13 exits. Is that more or less accurate? Lucky number 13. Okay. <laughs> so uh, 13, though, but where's the denominator in Crunchbase? 13 out of how many companies have you guys actually been that successful with already? I think we've invested in over 70 at this point. Um, so but, that's a good percentage to have about 15 20% with an exit already. I think at this life cycle, um, it's still pretty early. Like We started investing um, about five years ago. And um, I think most venture capital funds have about a 10-year lifespan. So you could argue we're about halfway through. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's a number of great stories that, that are playing out as we speak. And then there's, there's some that you thought were going to play out a little bit longer and get snatched up um, pretty quickly. I think one a good example is this company, Chariot, which is building basically ride-sharing and it was taking more of a, a group model. And so they got these big vans from Ford and had these routes and an app. And um, their, you know, their equipment supplier was Ford. And Ford eventually was like, oh, let's, you know, we should just acquire these guys yeah. because we're not going to go build and, you know, experiment this way. Um, so that exit, I think, happened maybe a year after our, our money was wired. Um, and it was a great return. We probably, you know, I thought it might have played out over a couple more cities another year or two, but um, it was it was a great outcome for us. And we're seeing a lot of that where 
um, you know, we we invest in brands. They they start getting traction, mm-hmm. and then a large um, consumer company comes and just basically acquires it because they've got all the distribution, but they don't have that innovative thing going on. So I want to come back to Bitcoin in a little bit because there's a ton of stuff to go over with you, but I have to ask you something about the Winklevoss Capital website. Yeah, you have on that homepage a fascinating painting that I've been entranced with by Jack Crossing on Sixth Avenue. What motivated you to put that on on your homepage? Are you on <laughs> Sixth Avenue or what what was about and if you've never seen the the picture, the painting, it's an astronaut in full full um spacesuit on fire crossing Sixth Avenue. Yeah, I think I think we really like the image because A we're New York based. Right. Um so it really sp- spoke to us in that uh, fashion. B, it's an astronaut. And a lot of these companies, including, you know, Bitcoin and cryptos pushing that frontier, right, going into space. Moonshots. Uh, moonshots, exactly. And then the flames, you know, represent, I think, uh, the risk inherent with <laughs> with these uh, entrepreneurs and what they're trying to do. And, and um, you know, people often, you know, they dare to like think big, but you also have to dare to know that like, you know, you could fail in a big way. Um, it just may not work. You might put years of your life on the line for no guarantee, no return. Um, and that's just important, you know, being able to take that risk and being comfortable with it. And if you fall, getting right back up and going at it again. What What's the Jeff Bezos quote? If you're not failing, you're not taking enough risk or something to that effect? That sounds right. Um you know, we had a, a rowing coach in high school that said, if you meet all of your goals, you're not setting them high right. enough. So uh, there's probably a, a lot of ways to skin that saying. But I think Cameron makes a really good point. Um, being comfortable with the concept of huge failure um, is really a, the essence, I think, of, of uh, entrepreneurship and risk taking. Um, and I think that that astronaut picture really embodies that and in, in sort of the the essence of of what it means to be an entrepreneur and and yeah you're, it's not for everyone and it's uh it's certainly not an everyday thing and those are the type of individuals and teams we're we're looking to back and it's a very specific person um and i think that that sort of captures the the kind of astronauts we're looking for harvard connection was that a fun idea was that really going to be a business what was the thinking when you guys first teed that up so it's definitely um, a lot of fun thinking about this, but we always thought this could be a great business as well. There's actually Harvard Connection that was rebranded to Connect You, mm-hmm. um, but the idea was to help students connect um, more easily on campuses. We went to Harvard for undergraduate, but in in Boston alone, there's at least 50 schools. Mm-hmm. There's so many different students, but by junior year, we hadn't really met many people from outside of your walk of life, you, you know, you're in sports team, you're, you do, you have your major and you don't really like connect outside of your bubbles. Like life's too busy and geography constraints, whatever. So we sort of said like, let's let our fingers do the walking and let's put uh, real life social networks online and let's use email addresses to filter people into networks within networks. So if you go to Harvard, you have a harvard.edu email address. Um, you can't get that unless you're actually a student. Um, mm-hmm. The registrar gives you one, and they don't issue you more than one, so you can't just give one, an X one, to a friend. Right. Um, so and the same thing if you go and you work at a company. Let's say you go to work at Goldman Sachs. You get a Goldman Sachs uh, you know, email address. I can't get one because I don't work there. And so all of a sudden, you can start building some order online, um, you know, the, the predecessors to connect you Facebook were MySpace, uh, right. Friendster, but they were just one network, a whole morass of people. You couldn't really find people based on their schools or where they were. And that was really the breakthrough that we that we had that later was, uh, you know, pushed into into Facebook. So here's the obligatory social network question. Um what did you guys think of the movie? Did they ever consult with you? Were you sort of surprised by how you were depicted? What What was your experience with that like? So we, we liked the movie. I think we're the only people depicted in it that actually went to the premiere. Um, right. uh, so, you know, I think they, they well, did... Divya a, as well. 
Divya, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, I think they did a great job of of telling a story and three different sides to the story, but not drawing a specific conclusion. Mm-hmm. So the conversation really starts as you leave the the theater, and based on how they told the story, you can sort of take any any of the sides of the different characters. Um, but I think, you know, there was a ton of information in the public domain, believe it or not, at that point. So they could do a ton of research without even actually talking to the subjects. Um, I think it probably should have won Best Picture. Mm-hmm. Uh, it got, I, I don't think, remember what won that year. It was King's exactly. Speech. There you go. Oh, that's yeah. well, that, but exactly, that's, yeah. that was made for the Oscars, the King's Speech. Yeah, it was, it was sort of packaged and, right. and felt that you know, perfect you, like campaign. I think they got... Uh, the Queen uh, of England to sort of endorse it. They just, you know, ran an incredible. And, and it's a movie you can you can watch with your grandparents and, right. and younger kids. It's it's feel good. You're kind of rooting for the king, even though he's a king. Um, and uh, you know, the Social Network. I think a lot of people get to the end of that movie and you sort of feel like, wow, okay, this is this is not a happy <laughs> world. Um, it's not, you know, um, there's a, you know necessarily that feeling to it. So was the original business model of uh, Harvard Connection? Let's spread uh, fake news and affect a presidential campaign, or did that come later? That that's uh, funny. Um, I mean, so when we were thinking about this idea, we we were saying like, if this works on the Harvard campus, there's no reason it doesn't work on every campus, you know, or every like micro network in the world sure. at that time. As, so as long as you have a single identifying email address that can't be faked, right? I mean, so at that point, people were still almost not being themselves online and using avatars, mm-hmm. and then this was really the first time where people were saying, "Hey, I want to be identified as Cameron Winklevoss. I want people to be able to find me." I think today, now, right? Because if you go back to like the AOL. Like AOL, the chat rooms, no one was themselves. Shop like, Girl 42, <laughs> right. right. It was nobody's real name. <laughs> it wasn't, yeah. And then all of a sudden, um, there was this flip, um, sort of cracked the identity problem mm-hmm. on the internet. And then everyone's like, wait, I'm going to be my real self online. And that was really ex- interesting to see that sort of movement. So NetNet, was the social network good for you? Did it, was it a, do you come away from it with a positive experience or did you, Think of this as well. They kind of, you know, told the story and and played a little fast and loose with the truth, and and made some people out to be good guys and bad guys. So I think that we've made it good for us. I think ultimately you have to like take these things and try and you know make them positive for you. Um, it's a pe- at the end of the day, it's a piece of art mm-hmm. and entertainment first and foremost, as opposed to. A documentary that's hard-hitting investigative reporting and you know we certainly understood that difference but a lot of people don't they're like oh that's like exactly how things went as opposed to that's sort of a composite storytelling Um, but yeah I mean I think overall it was super exciting to sort of watch it unfold and happen it was flattering that people cared about our story to some extent Um, and like Cameron says this a lot, like it could have been a really bad movie, right. um, a really bad portrayal. Um, it happened to be like a great movie, one we can show our grandkids kind of thing. So you can't take yourself or it too seriously. The funny thing is, though, is like a lot of other people like take it more seriously than at least we do. Well, it sounds like you guys have a healthy attitude about it. We try, um, but people will come up on the street and they'll be like, I'm so pissed off or like, you know, they're like really exercised about the movie or what happened or this or that. Um, it's like, dude, calm down. <laughs> like, it's yeah. okay. It's just a movie. We'll, we'll, we'll be so let's there. talk about real life a second. So you're working on Harvard Connection. You hire Zuckerberg to do some coding for you. At what point did you start to get an inkling? Hey, this guy is uh, not really being all that transparent with us. We got our first inkling when we read the Harvard Crimson uh, at the dining room table and we're started. It, it was like surreal, like you're, you're reading, you know, this this uh, alternative reality. And we're like, well, wait a second. Maybe there's like another guy on campus with the same name <laughs> who's thinking about, you know, the same thing. And it was just a very surreal moment. And that that's when we sort of 
realized what what had happened. Right. So the, the Harvard Crimson's a student newspaper. Yep. Um, but then when we obviously were shocked, we're like, what? Like Mark Zuckerberg launched the Facebook. We're like reading our own obituary in a way. Right. <laughs> it's like so super surreal. Uh, then sort of looking back as we sort of uncovered or, or thought like there was 52 emails exchanged and it was clear as we learned later on that he would say he was doing stuff and then tell his friend like I'm sandbagging them effectively. Really? So, so yeah, it was, it was like this, it wasn't like all of a sudden he went his own way and said, see you guys like good luck. It was sort of this methodical premeditated sandbagging, which was really the basis of of the lawsuit, which was fraud. So you proceed, proceeded on two levels. One was the lawsuit, but there was also um, uh, a Harvard Code of Ethics that the claim was, hey, you have an obligation as a student here to maintain the highest levels of ethical standards. How did that play out in real life? It was depicted in a certain way. It didn't. Way. It yeah, didn't. Because yeah. in the movie, it's a whole discussion with the president of the university, and that that turns out to be kind of artistic license. Mm, Larry Summers wasn't that interested in the uh, the ethics handbook. So, so that the part is accurate where we go to student office hours and sit in line like everyone else and say, look, you know, the handbook says this. A student, you know. Uh, interacted with us in a way that's in violation of that. Um, and yeah, the truth is fact is that that the university um, and President Summers just didn't care. Um, so that was disappointing. Um, I think, you know, as young students, you know, wide-eyed, bushy-tailed, like right. entrepreneurs, I think we thought, we naively thought that like the student handbook had some teeth or it would sort of um, protect us. We we uh, we certainly approach him as a fellow student, not some random stranger. Right. Um, and so that was an eye opener. And I don't want to say a loss of innocence, but oh gosh, like you know, um, it just felt like we we had a different idea or perception of what actually the reality was. You had expectations of better behavior from a fellow Harvard student. Is that a fair way to sum it up? I think so. When did you guys first get involved in in Bitcoin? So, we we first got involved in the summer of 2012, and we first learned about it uh, on vacation in Ibiza. So 2012, I gotta think Bitcoin is like ten bucks then. Is that about right? I think uh, it under, was just under ten. It was mm -hmm. high single digits. Mm -hmm. um, which, which at that point, uh, if you talk to Bitcoiners, was like, oh, it's getting really expensive. <laughs> right. It's $8. <laughs> yeah. What are we going to do? Like, it used to be like pennies, you know? Right. <laughs> um, so we're on vacation, and a, a, a guy who we didn't know but had mutual friends in, in common came up, introduced himself, said, like, basically, have you, what have you guys thought? Have you guys thought about Bitcoin digital currency? And we hadn't. Um, and we had just started Winklevoss Capital. Um, a few months earlier, mm -hmm. we had just been we uh, retired from rowing. We had rowed for 15 years. We competed in the 2008 Olympics and decided to hang up um, our oars. And so we were just starting to get into entrepreneurship um, again, basically via angel investing. Mm -hmm. And so we were totally all ears for new ideas. And we stayed in touch and then um, met some um, Bitcoin entrepreneurs in New York uh, as soon as we got back to the States, and the rest is sort of history. Did you start by buying Bitcoin or start by putting money into other crypto-related um, startups? So that was kind of a debate we had internally. Um, what's a better investment, the coin or the company built on top of it? We ended up actually doing both. Mm -hmm. um, but I think in a lot of these cases for cryptocurrencies, the ultimate Bitcoin bet is Bitcoin because sure. Bitcoin's got to work first before a company that is built on top of it works. So we, we sort of like came to the sequencing that um, buying the currency is it's sort of like buying 
uh, a piece of the entire internet or the ecosystem. Right. Um, and so imagine if you could go back in time and buy a piece of the internet, like you don't have to bet on Amazon versus pets.com. If you own the internet, um, as long as, you know, as long as you would be a part of Amazon's growth. I remember when Network Solutions, which was the registrar for domains that was officially approved. I remember when that stock went crazy and it was the exact same argument. Hey, you don't have to pick a winner. Pick the one company that gets to get a little piece of every right. company online. Just like you sort of like bet on the racetrack, not trying to pick the horses. And as long as there's horses racing, you'll be a part of the pot. So Bitcoin goes pretty vertical starting in uh, 2013, 2015, with a couple of big pullbacks. But ultimately, towards the end of 2017, I want to say it was about 19,000. Uh, is that about right? That's about right. And and I think that the first sort of big inflection point we saw was in, I think it was March of 2013, when there was the Cyprus um, financial crisis and right. the government did a bail-in. So basically they trimmed off anybody with deposits above 100,000 euro, they just took it. Thanks. Um, <laughs> and right? people started, you know, Bitcoin sort of hit a mainstream consciousness at that point. And people realized, wow, this is like a global asset that um, is fascinating. It's it's a, literally a digital gold. Um, I've been calling it libertarian gold because the philosophy of the government shouldn't be able to do what they right. did in Cyprus totally. is so appealing to that crew. Right. And and one of the things, though, we also realized as as it sort of entered mainstream consciousness was that you know the Cypriots, the, the the ship had sailed for them, right? Mm -hmm. They they weren't going to get into Bitcoin. It had already happened. But there was a lot of people who saw that, who then said, "Hey, how do I get into Bitcoin?" And the only option at that time was a was a site called Mt. Gox. I remember, um, which is MTGOX. It stands for Magic the Gathering Online Exchange. <laughs> so prior to being a Bitcoin exchange, it was a Magic the Gathering online exchange for literally magic cards. And they did one of the greatest pivots of all time mm -hmm. into Bitcoin. And so we actually acquired a lot of our Bitcoin on Mt. Gox. Thankfully, we weren't caught up when it, it imploded. Up, yeah. We'd already left the exchange. But through that sort of experience and all the risk, um, we built our own cold storage system. We basically took private keys, sharded them, cut them in basically into pieces, and then distributed across uh, the country in banks. Um, and some banks, like, they kind of figured what we were up to. Like, they knew we were involved with Bitcoin, so they're like, no, like, you can't open up really? a deposit yeah, box. Um, we got turned away by uh, a number of banks. It I would think anyone could walk into any bank and say, hi, I want to open a safety deposit bank. You would think. And, but and I think that's kind of how it works, right? Because when you open one up, then the bank person leaves and gives you that privacy they're not really right. supposed to ask you what's uh, in here yeah but as apparently long as it's not you know contraband why would you're not supposed to put dollars in right in no it. cash and i think you could potentially argue that we were putting value but but uh you know a shard Ooh. of a private key in it of itself is not value right. it's the quorum of those keys so it's a, it was a really interesting kind of experience and we lived on planes for you know the better part of a week um, and we're like, we're really motivated to do this. Great. But how do we really get people into this system? And how do we create an on-ramp? And that kind of led us into um, the gap, which is that in order for this to really work, we've got to have regulated infrastructure that's licensed, compliant, built with like a security first mentality. And that was the genesis of Gemini, our, our online platform that we started building in 2014, we launched in 2015, and we've been running and building since since then. Um, and the the simple value prop is really buy, sell, and store initially Bitcoin, now Ethereum, Zcash, Bitcoin Cash, Litecoin, and we'll be adding more. Um, and then once we built that trusted platform, you know, we we did a, we launched a mobile app, so you can download the Gemini mobile app in the Google Play or the Apple um, iOS store and literally travel with your crypto at your fingertips and you can trade and do whatever you need to do effectively mobile. Um, so that was that's what we've been working on for the better part of the past four or five years. Let, let's talk about Wink Dex because I haven't really gotten to that. This is effectively your 
um, custom index of various cryptocurrencies. Is that a fair way to describe it? So it is a, uh, a blended price index of um, Bitcoin prices. Um, so it's just one of the products we've been building over the past couple of years. When you say blended, is it multiple cryptos or is it just one currency? Well, it, there's one for, um, if I remember correctly, uh, Bitcoin and Ether. Mm-hmm. So the risk profiles of exchanges vary a, a lot. Mm-hmm. Because every crypto exchange is also custodian, so when you trade somewhere, you've got to commit your capital there. Right. And some exchanges are like Mt. Gox, and some exchanges are like Gemini. Uh, they've never had an incident, so um, prices can differ in the industry quite a bit from different exchanges because of the risk profile of how they custody, whether or not you can get fiat dollars in or out. Right. Um, so the idea of the Winkdex was to try and create a price because there's a lot of disparate prices um, and understand what that sort of blend is. Similar to stocks where you have things trading on the New York, the NASDAQ, the go through all the list of different exchanges, very often you'll have a different price across this. You want to come up with, here's the actual price of Bitcoin at this moment. That's that's correct, yeah. So. The, the question that, that I find intriguing from an institutional perspective is I've heard and read various parties say it's challenging to get liquid in Bitcoin for size, meaning hundreds of thousands of dollars. Has that changed? Is it going to change in the future? If someone wants to move a million dollars in and out of Bitcoin, can you do that quickly or are we not quite there yet? So the when we first got into Bitcoin... Um, $25,000 was hard to move into the market and mm-hmm. actually acquire. Um, it would, had a market cap. Would you above. move the price if you were buying 25000 did it in a way, you know, you could definitely impact the market. Um, it was a $100 million market cap um, world that, that when we first got in. Um, I think what people, one of the common misconceptions about Bitcoin today is the liquidity. There's a lot more than people think is there. Um, You could move a million dollars in and out um, relatively easily. Um, And so very, very very quickly. And a lot of times, because these exchanges are full reserve, um, the depth of the order book looks shallower than it actually is. But Gemini, for instance, we have um, the world's biggest liquidity providers outside of crypto. They're customers. Uh So if you can think of a name... um, of a market maker on New York Stock Exchange, there's a really good chance they're on Gemini. So we have the same amount of um, liquidity, in a sense, the same uh, players are there. Um, they just don't show as much because it's full reserve. But it's meaning it's dollar for dollar backup. Of yeah, whatever the, the prime brokers trade. haven't right. haven't totally moved into the space yet. So. Um, but they're they're all sitting there, and if they see orders come onto the order book, they're going to move funds and and try and add liquidity and, and take the other side of that trade, assuming it makes sense for them. What what do you make of Fidelity Investments being so aggressive so early, moving into the crypto space? The rest of Wall Street had kind of a let's wait and see what's going to happen. Fidelity, maybe I wonder if they missed the ETF boom or something, but they appear to have said hey, this is the next big thing we want in early. Mm-hmm. I think it makes a lot of sense, and it's a smart move. Um, they're, you know, they see the opportunity today. It may not make, you know, the business case may not be there today, but it will be there tomorrow. And as these businesses work, um, you know, getting there first is, is an advantage for sure. Um, I think a lot of Wall Street got really close in 2017, and we're about to take the plunge. Maybe they set up a trading desk with, one individual thinking they would scale that out. I think Goldman Sachs, you know, built started to build a trading desk, and then it seems to be a little bit on pause, and you know, people have backed away. But there are going to be first movers, and there's going to be a lot of value that accrues to them. I think because of that. So, so I love the ad campaign that you guys have put together for Gemini because it's so counter to the sort of Wild West early days of crypto. So, just a full. At, when I was doing my homework, I, I saw a couple of things. The revolution needs rules was one. Crypto without chaos, which certainly makes sense 
for people who seem to have lost cash when something implodes or a company loses their their key. It just seems insane that that happens. Money has a future. You guys are trying to take this exchange and make it like a regular mainstream uh, currency exchange. Or am I overselling that? I think that's that's right. That's right. I mean, yeah. we we entered the space when it was a wild west. We know what the revolution looks like without rules. Um, it usually ends up with catastrophic failures, okay. um, people really getting injured, a lot of value being lost. And you know, you would never put your money in an unregulated bank. Um, it would never cross your mind. And yet, in crypto, like that's that's a sad reality of the market to some extent. Um, yeah, I mean, like we were there five years ago. Like I don't miss that. I'm not nostalgic for the early right. days of, of of Bitcoin or crypto. Um, it wasn't as interesting as it is today. The best entrepreneurs weren't in the game. Um, and I think that the you know the regulation has brought in certainty. It's brought in more money, therefore investment, therefore better entrepreneurs. Um, it's sort of been this incredible, great cycle. Um, so we lived that Wild West firsthand, and it was scary, and a lot of people got burned. And uh, we created Gemini in the wake of all of that as a solution to that problem so people could engage with crypto in a way that was felt as you know, safe and compliant as you know, opening a bank account at JP Morgan or whatever. Um, and so we, we know what that's like. And, you know, so I think we're pretty informed on, on, you know, the, the shortcomings of it. And I think the, the money as a future really plays on this idea that most of the payment mechanisms that we grew up with, um, are decades old. Um, the Fed wire system is ancient. Right. Um, credit cards, I think, came from the 50s and 60s. And I remember the first days of eBay um, when I ordered some stuff. I did a money order uh, through through the post office. So you go to the post office, you give them a hundred bucks. They give you like a slip that's basically a credit. You put it in an envelope. You mail it off. You get your good. And then PayPal came out, and you're like, wow, that's amazing. It just made my life so much easier. But then you realize that it's still sending value through the existing system and protocols. It's really not a global payment system. And then you discover Bitcoin and you're like, oh my God, um, this is truly amazing. You can send any amount of money for very cheap um, anywhere in the world pretty much instantaneously. Um, and, and so that fast forward to the past year, we built the Gemini dollar, which is a stable coin pegged to the dollar um, on the Ethereum network. And now with the Gemini mobile app, I can send literally proxies for US dollars to anybody in the world um, instantaneously. We've literally brought dollars onto the blockchain. And that's like the future of huh. money. You know, um, it's kind of like... Um, it's so counterintuitive, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's sort it's, of like what Skype did for, for voice. Um, I remember... When I was a kid, long distance calls were a thing. Expensive. Yeah, like my mom would be like, "Shh, like your aunt's calling from California." <laughs> and we lived in Connecticut at the time. It was like a, expensive. It was a big thing, and that's what moving money has been for for a long time since the beginning of time. You right? call up your banker. You have to put in these wire instructions. It's a, like these ancient protocols. I mean, if you send a wire on Friday, um, it and there's a bank holiday on Monday. You know, from New York to London. It's probably getting there on Tuesday. Um, if you put the numbers in incorrectly, it's going to be sitting in limbo for a long time. Right. So, so the, the joke in crypto is you're better off getting um, going to a plane on JFK and flying from New York to London with a bag of cash because it'll get there right. quicker. So crypto, the idea is crypto is basically making money, sending money and value as easy as sending email. Huh. Um, so that's kind of the that was our aha moment. Um, five years ago, and it still is today. So you describe it as amazing. A lot of other people in 2017 shared that enthusiasm. Did you feel in 2017 like Bitcoin had blown up into a full-on bubble? Like, how are you looking, having been there so much earlier, how are you looking at 2017 going, we were in this at $8, this thing is now 1000 5000 10000 At what point did you say, this is starting to get out of hand? Well, I think we we 
so 2017 we felt like okay we've seen this movie movie before because <laughs> um, it was like I, I don't know that the 20th Bitcoin bubble um, right. where people said oh it's out of it's way ahead of itself it's gonna explode and be worth nothing but each time the excitement gets ahead of itself it tends to stabilize at a better floor than it than it was before so if you look at the instead of looking at the 52 week highs, Look at the 52-week lows, and each of them are stepping up into the right direction. Right. Now, the way we get there is kind of a wild ride in between, um, but we've sort of lived through this before, and now people call it a, a crypto winner, and this is like the third or fourth winner we've been in. Right. Um, so we've sort of seen this before. It's pretty typical of early-stage technology. People get overexcited. It recorrects. Then entrepreneurs come and continue to build great stuff, and then it'll go again. So we we fully think that there will be another wave, um, and it should be probably more exciting than the last one. So on paper in 2017, your Bitcoin investments scale up to over a billion dollars. Is that fair number? That's that's what I read. I don't know how much hyperbole is in that. What is it? like when you're saying, I know this is a little crazy, but there it is on paper, it's a billion dollars. Or do you just say, we know this is going to come back down to earth and we'll, let's just ignore it and keep working? I so, think the latter. I mean, yeah. we, we definitely ignored it and keep working. Um, if you look at the price a year ago, it was close to 20000 mm -hmm. If you look at the price today, it's, it's a fifth of that. Um, and yet over the last year, if we think of like what we've achieved as a business at Gemini in terms of building our company, we've launched uh, mobile apps, um, we've launched a stablecoin, we've added three new assets to the platform, we're about 200 uh, employees strong, uh, we're shipping fast. 200 employees, really? So yeah. this is a, a, a not insubstantial company. And you're really thinking about this as a longer-term play, not, hey, look how much we're worth, hit the bid, and let's go on vacation. Absolutely. I mean, we we um, we're tr we we say internally that we're building a centurion, a hundred-year-plus company um, in the valley. People often talk about the unicorn, and that's the the company valued at a billion dollars. And our view is that, like, look, let's try and build a sustainable business. If you look at the the people in the financial world that that we respect, um, like the State Streets of the world, the Bank of New York, these are two hundred year old plus right. institutions. So that's what we're trying to build is longevity, and we think the value the valuation part will really take care of itself. And so the last year for Gemini has really been uh, remarkable. We've never sort of built so much, built so fast, and done so many things. And when you look at the price. Um, at a fifth of where it was, it just it kind of is a reminder how it's it's just one metric, and it often lags. It it can be obviously too too far ahead and too mm -hmm. far behind, and and one of the anecdotal things I, I will say is that um, as the price was rushing up to twenty thousand, I was getting tons of texts and questions from people like should I buy should I buy and I'm like I, I don't know I mean it feels like you know there's a there's a lot of froth here but now I'm getting. The questions again because people are seeing it at four thousand and, and sitting there and it's been there for I think we're going into like thirteen month thirteen of the bear market. People are starting to say, hmm, it's starting to look like uh, That's pretty interesting. Floor. Yeah, like should it's I be to look getting cheap, in? right? <laughs> um, but if you zoom out enough, um, our view, at least with Bitcoin, is that it is a digital gold. And so um, that thesis is right. Still the, the the qualities that make gold valuable, if you break them down, um, scarcity, for instance, Bitcoin's actually fixed. Divisibility, portability, Bitcoin's like sending email, uh, fungibility. So all of the characteristics that make gold valuable, Bitcoin has those characteristics. It e either equals them, equals gold, or betters betters gold. So we call it gold 2.0. And Bitcoin's market cap, I haven't checked today, but let's say it's a hundred uh, million dollars. Then gold's at seven trillion. If it's a better gold, it's got to get that high as a market cap. So we think uh, you know Bitcoin is better at being gold than gold. So therefore, uh, it it has a lot of room to appreciate. Blockchain originally was touted as unhackable, and now we're starting to see some articles about small hacks not into the wallets 
but to blockchain itself. Is that a genuine issue, or are these just really little fringe situations that don't undercut the the main premise of blockchain? So a lot of the early hacks were actually company hacks or entrepreneur failures. Uh, they weren't failures of the Bitcoin protocol, uh, which has never been hacked. Um, so there are smaller coins um, that have had issues because they don't have a large mining community around them. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I think that this stuff is overblown. It makes good good headlines. Sure. But I don't think it tells at all the full picture, just like price is not the full picture. So I think you need to like dig deep and do your homework on this stuff. But this space is here to stay. Cryptocurrency is not going away. It's going to power and re-architect the future internet. People talk about Web 1.0, 2.0. We're, we're on the um, beginning of Web 3.0. So it's something you should totally learn more about and take seriously. Can you guys stick around? I have a bunch more questions Absolutely. for you. Sure. We have been speaking to Cameron and Tyler Winklevoss, founders of Gemini, a crypto exchange, as well as uh, Harvard Connection and Winklevoss Capital. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure and come back for the podcast extras where we keep the type rolling and continue discussing all things crypto. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. Check out my daily column on bloomberg.com slash opinion. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the podcast. Guys, thank you so much for doing this. I've been really looking forward to chatting with you, and you have uh, not disappointed. There are so many questions I did not get to, um, and they'll have to wait for another time because I have to ask you my favorite questions that we ask all of our guests. Um, These are always uh, interesting and revealing of people's um, history and background and personality. So let me jump right into this. Tell us, what is the make, year, and model of the first car you guys owned? I think we shared a an SUV, a Land Rover, mm-hmm. 1999. I think that's right. First car. And yeah, you guys we, were we, living split in, it, we split it down the middle. You guys were living <laughs> in, in Greenwich, is that right? That's correct. So you had a really interesting up, upbringing, and I wanted to, to ask you about that. But we'll, if we have time, we'll, we'll circle back. So tell us the most important thing people don't know about the Winklevoss twins. Um, so Tyler's right-handed, Cameron's left-handed. Is really is that true? Yeah, that's it. Is. is that common amongst twins, or is that relatively rare? So I think that it's in twenty-five percent of identical twins are mirror image. Uh huh. Um, and I think it's when the egg splits later. Right. That's quite fascinating. I yeah. had no no idea about that. Okay. Um, who were some of your early mentors? You mentioned your dad. Yep. Who, who affected your career and your entrepreneurial desires? I think for sure parents. Um, I would say early coaches were important. Um, high school rowing coach James Mangan, this Irishman who really helped us explain the sport to us and help us fall in love with it um, and sort of believe in ourselves that we could achieve these things as kids in high school. Um, so I'd say those are those were big ones early on that really helped, um, you know, uh, affect the trajectory of, of our later years. What, what about you guys as venture capitalists and investors? Who has influenced the way you think about that work and the way you put money at risk? I think, well, our father is an entrepreneur, so I think we, through osmosis, sort of being in that that household, um, he worked with computers back in the 60s prior to even monitors when it was like punch card and is using a Univac, the the computer, I don't think it would even fit in in this uh, floor of the studio, Um, was probably three times the size of the studio. So we'd already always been around sort of technology and ideas and taking risk. And then I think, you know, believe it or not, the sport of rowing, I feel like has informed so much of how we think 
um, built building teams, um, you know, day in, day out, just consistency. Um, you know, it was a 15 year journey for us. Um, when we stepped in the boathouse, I don't think we thought we would be on, you know, Olympians, but 15 years later, um, we were, and it was just a lot of work for, you know, day in, day out. Um, and I think that's most of, you know, entrepreneurship, uh, it's easy to look at the big numbers and the IPOs, but if you look at most of these companies, they've been at it for uh, well over a decade and just you know plugging away. Hmm, quite interesting. Tell us about some of your favorite books, be they investing or general interest, fiction, nonfiction. What do you guys like to read? So, so I think uh, Zero to One uh, is a great quick read. Uh, it's Peter Thiel's book mm-hmm. on investing. There's a lot of counterintuitive uh, ideas and examples in there. Um, it's, I think it's something like 80 pages. It's a really quick, straightforward read. Um, and it then it really captures the, the art of, of startups and entrepreneurship. It's, it's a really good, quick way to understand how that world works because you don't learn it in a classroom. Right. Usually you don't learn it in a liberal arts education, uh, certainly usually not in high school. So I think that's a quick way to kind of get up on it. What else? What else do you guys read? So I think Snow Crash by Neil Stevenson sure. is phenomenal. Um, I think it was written in the 80s, and he um, pretty much like um, depicts virtual reality um, in an amazing way. Uh, so that's a great a great book, and just becoming more and more relevant by by the day. And then I think Cryptonomicon. Um, I knew you were going to go there. Yeah. Also it, by Stevenson. Yeah. By Stevenson. And it basically, you know, Bitcoin is, you're reading and you're like, this is Bitcoin, you know. Um, I mean, how, how incredible. he This guy, he predicts VR and predicts um, Bitcoin. Uh, so if people- Decades write, in advance. Decades. Not even like yeah. right before. Not, it was yeah. so far ahead. Like, um, And so if you've read- Ready Player One. It's sort of like the newer version of Snow Crash, right. um, but those are really fun, incredible. There's so much more than just like oh, he predicts Bitcoin and VR, but also I think you're going to see this um, convergence of the two worlds of VR gaming and crypto and payments. Um, that's going to be fascinating to see play out. So these are great books to kind of go back to where it all started. Huh. Quite interesting. Tell us about a time you failed and what you learned from the experience. It's a great question. I mean, I think a lot of times when people think of failure, they think of some epic, you know, decision or thing that went wrong. And I think um, certainly, you know, if you're in the game long enough, you're going to have those. Um, I think we sort of learned early on how to pick your partners wisely. Um, But I think, you know, in the sport of rowing, uh, a lot of times you, you go out and you have a bad practice um, and you feel pretty bad about the performance, but um, it only lasts as long until the next practice. And so you build this, this you sort of live with failure in a way. Um, and most of you know the Olympians and gold medalists that we know lost a lot more races than they won. So you, you really learn to embrace failure, to process it, um, mm-hmm. and then just to keep moving on and realize that, you know, as you push forward, it's just going to be part of that that experience. Um, and and I think the people who stay in the game, whether it's entrepreneurs or investors, through the long haul, like they do well. It's the people that that sort of fail or, or you know leave after a year or two. Um, they kind of miss out on on all the other stuff. What do you guys do for fun? Hmm, that's a good question. Um, <laughs> everybody wants to wants to start a startup. And then um, when you get in, you realize how much work it is. Uh, there's not too much time for fun, but if there's downtime, uh, we've been doing some skiing lately. Uh, really enjoy getting out in the mountain, the energy workout. It's very social. It's fun. Um, love reading. Love watching movies. Um, you know, simple things that just are sort of relaxing, seeing friends. Um, but but yeah, when you when you start a company, it it definitely um, all consuming. It's, it's all consuming. Yeah, the, yeah. the thing I would equate it to most, and I don't have kids, but I imagine it's like having a family, having kids. You don't just, you know, check in from nine to five. It's a twenty four seven thing that you live with, and it's all encompassing. There's really there's it blurs between you know work time and non work time. It's sort of like always there. I, I think that's a generational thing because the current generation are helicopter parents. 
go back 30 or 40 years and the latchkey generation, <laughs> the parents would occasionally check in. But your point is, is well made. So within crypto and or venture capital, what are you most excited about? What do you think is really the most interesting, disruptive thing that's going to come out of those spaces? So I think crypto is going to usher in Web 3.0. Right now, we have basically an internet that's built up of a few centralized services. Mm. And I think we're going to see sort of the decentralization of many of these services. Um, and, and users are going to realize that they should really be getting uh, compensated for their, their content. Right now, we, we are all part of these social networks, and we are the product, and we're creating tons of content and not getting anything for it. Um, so I think that there's going to be a huge shift um, in that direction, and cryptocurrency is going to be part of that solution in ushering in the Web 3.0. And then what we're seeing is a lot of, you know, it's, it, building a brand these days, is it's really fascinating because you can just go direct to consumer. You don't need the fixed costs of a brick and mortar. Um, we're in one company called Dirty Lemon where literally you just order it through text. It's SMS. It's super simple. And they have a store uh, downtown that's not even manned by any um, individuals. You, you go by, there's a, there's a camera, you, you put in your order and you just take, take what you want. Um, it's truly automated. Um, and then there's lots of other brands that I think are going to you know innovate and then get scooped up by larger incumbents. So um, it's, a, it's a really interesting time to be building brands and things like that. If a millennial or a college student came up to you and said, I'm interested in fill in the blank, startups, venture capital, crypto, uh, what sort of advice would you give them? So I think that the, uh, the big piece of advice I would say is that whatever you choose to do, you should definitely look at crypto. <laughs> but if you don't like crypto, that's fine. Um, but you should be looking at the minimum of a four-year cycle. Mm -hmm. um, we see it in our shop at Gemini that it takes about six months for an engineer to get up to speed and be truly productive at that optimal level. And then it, you know, you it takes another six months to just sort of learn and 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 understand how the company works, learn where the cold brew is, all those things. Yeah, <laughs> you got to know where the coffee is, right? Um, and I think a lot of times people, their their horizon, the, the patience isn't there. Um, and they're looking to just sort of switch in a, in a lot of like quickly. And, and when we look at like our, you know, like historically that we did, I mean, we were in the sport of rowing for 15 years and it wasn't until the 11th year where we thought, you know, hey, maybe we could potentially make the Olympics. Um, and it took, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't months. It wasn't, it, it was over a decade. So I think, you know, what we've learned is like patience is huge. Um, we've only been in cryptocurrency, and I say only for five years. Most right. people would think that's a lifetime, but it's but, sort of like dog years cryptocurrency. So <laughs> yeah, um, but hey, like how long is when when this is mid two thousands, right? So it's not like there's a fifty year history. Two thousand nine, totally. And yeah. and a lot of people they look at the crypto winner right now and they say, wow, this is like so bad. And honestly, most of the time we've been in it, there's been winter. Uh, Gemini, the first two years of Gemini, uh, people weren't thinking about crypto. They didn't really, you know, weren't paying attention. And all of a sudden, boom, they're paying attention. But I think patience overall, if that's the TLDR of my, um, my comment. I mean, there's such a dearth of engineers. And then if you go to security engineers or like infrastructure engineers, it's even harder to find them. Right. So if you want job security, like become an engineer, learn how to talk to machines. Um, but I also think the with that movement, um, being able to think creatively, being like artistic and following things that sort of um, foster that in you is going to be super important because you're going to have AI, you're going to have um, machines and all this automation. Um, but machines aren't good at being creative. Humans are. So really tapping into the creativity of, of being human and the human spirit um, and understanding how to like how that intersects with machines is going to be like paramount to navigating the future. Hmm. And our final question, what do you know about the world of investing, be it venture capital, crypto or what have you, that you wish you knew 10, 15 years ago when you were first getting your legs under you? Hmm, that's a good question. Um, well, I always wish I had a crystal ball. Um, I think you know, but what Cameron said before is patience is 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 so big. 
Um, Rome wasn't built in a day. Startups won't be built in a day. We we talk about like um, the timelines of building a company in the 1930s uh, were so much more longer long than the than the ones today. Um, but whether you're investing, like you can have a long term vision, but if you don't have the patience or the conviction to wait it out, and if you're just quarter to quarter or day to day, um, then you can get pinched. Um, so you know, markets are are rational and efficient in the long run, but in the short run, they're not. And the same thing as an athlete, you're just not going to make become a different athlete like overnight. And so I think the wisdom, the common sense of sort of patience, get rich uh, slowly is another thing I like to think about. Um, all of that, you know, true value type investor mentality. Um, you know, I think that's super, super important. Um, it's easy to forget, but you know, there's also I love the saying: if you want it bad, you get it bad. Don't like I think the Navy SEALs don't say like don't run to your death. Um, I think patience and just having a long, a long term long ball type mentality is pretty much any everything in investing, entrepreneurship, and life. Quite quite fascinating. We have been speaking with Cameron and Tyler Winklevoss of Winklevoss Capital and Gemini, a crypto exchange. If you enjoy this conversation, well, look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes, Stitcher, Overcast, Bloomberg.com, wherever your finer podcasts are sold. And you can see any of the other 250 or so such conversations we've had in the past. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at Bloomberg.net. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack staff that helps us put together these conversations each week. Medina Parwana is my producer. Taylor Riggs is our booker slash producer. Atika Valbrun is our project manager. Michael Batnick is our head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Bloomberg Radio.